For us this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24 is where we'll be. Um, And so I would ask that you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 35 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some Bibles available in the back. Uh, We will jump around in some scriptures. We'll show some of those cross-references on the screen. But as far as our teaching passage this morning, we would ask that you keep that open in your lap in front of you. And so we're shifting gears a little bit here and doing something different in the new year as I come back uh, into the pulpit for teaching. Uh, And there's some purpose behind that. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this uh, with regards to when you were younger and when you were maybe in dating relationships or considering dating relationships, but my mind goes back to when I was at college and uh, I was already in a serious relationship with my wife at that point, but watching other young men and young women, you know, show some interest in one another and maybe they form a relationship, but they didn't know where the relationship was going because They were attracted to one another. There were things they liked about one another. This guy's funny. This girl's pretty. We enjoy spending time together. But after a certain amount of time, a decision needs to be made. Is this something where we continue to pursue? Uh, On our college campus, it was abbreviated to a DTR. We need to have a DTR. Let's define the relationship. And I always kind of laughed at these sort of things. But in many ways, this is an important step in any sort of romantic relationship. Are we just enjoying some of the superficial things about one another? Or is there a deeper connection here? Are there shared goals here that would make sense to pursue a long-term relationship? And so if I may draw an analogy here with those of us in this room, um, I want to have a little bit of a DTR-type teaching series with regards to our new church and those of us who have been coming or maybe here for the first time. You may have been drawn here to our new church for some good, but maybe not the deepest of reasons. It may just make sense geographically. We're down the street from where you live. You may simply like the idea of being involved in a new church. That just seems fun and exciting. You may really like certain styles of ministry that we have, whether it's our preaching ministry or our music ministry. But my hope is with this new sermon series that we're going to be doing for the next roughly eight weeks, is that you will feel more connected and have a greater desire to be here with us week after week for something far more significant than the things I listed before. What we're going to do over the next eight weeks is I'm going to, Lord willing, be teaching through our core values as a church. The core values that are really going to shape and define and set the trajectory for all of our ministries and everything that we do here at Harvest, Lord willing. And my hope is that in this process, you would still like our preaching. You would maybe still like our location and the fact that we're new, but you would feel a deeper sense of connection that these values are no longer just our church's values, but they're also your values as well. And so the core value that we're going to start with is this idea of gospel centrality. And I want to read for you what this core value says. You can find these core values on our website. But what we mean by gospel centrality is this. We believe that the gospel ought to be at the center of all Christian ministry. It is not just for the unsaved, but for the saved as well. We believe a continual exposure and greater understanding of the gospel is what helps in in the maturing of Christian disciples. So you may have sensed that already, that this has been a gospel-saturated service. That's something that we do. But now I want to look to the scriptures 
and teach why this is so important. Because ultimately, these core values, they, they don't come from us. I believe that these values actually come from what the Bible teaches. And so we're going to look at a story, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, called The Road to Emmaus. And I believe that this is a story that changes the way that you look at Scripture. It did for me, and as we'll come to find out, it did for the disciples. Again, you may have had this experience of, of experiencing or seeing something and never being able to look at that thing the same ever again. An analogy that I often use is maybe the first time you watched the movie Jaws, never looked or swam in a large body of water the same way again. There's always that thought in the back of your mind of what's below me. I know I had that fear even in swimming pools growing up after I saw that movie. It may be um, that you, uh, for example, saw somebody in a different light. I'm someone who likes movies. I like action movies, and I think Tom Cruise makes some good action movies. But seeing some of his interviews in real life, you realize this guy's really kind of a weird person, and it kind of makes it hard to connect with him in some of those movies as a macho man from time to time. And so you see something in a different way that you can never look at it again. Or maybe you've eaten something that didn't sit so well, and you got to see it more than once. You got to see it once going in and once coming out and have never been able to look at that type of meal ever again in the same way. For me, that's a double bacon Western cheeseburger, so we'll not order that ever again. And so this is what we see happen in this story in Scripture, that Jesus is going to teach these disciples on the road to Emmaus to look at God's Word in a different way and in a way that he's intended us to look at all, all along. So if you would, let's read the Scripture together. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word, if you are willing and able. I'm going to begin in verse 13 and continue all the way through verse 35. This is the word of the Lord. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all, the the all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. 
so he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked with us on the road, while he opened us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, those who were with them, gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of God this morning. You may be seated. And so as we consider this theme of our core value of gospel centrality, and as we look at the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples, I want us to look at two points in particular. The first point is in considering these disciples. They encounter the risen Jesus. Jesus has been crucified. He's died. He was in the grave for three days, and now he has risen. But that news is just starting to spread. And so Jesus, in his resurrection body, is walking with these disciples, and they do not see him. And so our first point is these disciples see Jesus, but they do not really see him for the first half of this story. And so let us consider these things, the, the setting. I, I just shared that Jesus has now been crucified, buried, resurrected, and is walking with these disciples as they have a conversation about the news of the day. And there was no greater news than what had happened to Jesus. In fact, even prior to Jesus's death, there was no greater news than Jesus in general. He had developed quite a name for himself, even amongst the common people, right? Before his crucifixion, as he entered into Jerusalem, he was met with a crowd of people who were hailing him as the Messiah, the coming promised king. And so Jesus was one to draw crowds very often, um, but much to the disciples' disappointment, as we see here that even his popularity could not protect him in their minds from his ultimate demise. And so they're sitting there, they're talking about the news of the day. They still can't believe what had happened. And up comes a stranger to walk alongside, alongside them, who simply asks, what are you talking about? And much to their amazement, they, they say, how could you not know what we're talking about? And notice, even before they begin to share this summary points of who Jesus was to Jesus himself, that these are not just any men, these are disciples of Jesus. It's important for us to know that Jesus' disciples did not just consist of the 12, that there was a larger group associated with him that would follow him often. And it would seem that these two men were part of, in some ways, that outer circle. They are described as followers or disciples of Jesus. One of them remains unnamed, but the other one is named Cleopas. And these two men, you can tell from this story, are deeply discouraged. Deeply discouraged. We look at a number of verses that make this pretty clear. If you look at the end of verse 17, before they begin to share what had happened to Jesus, we see that scripture says they were looking sad. Why was it that they were looking sad? Well, it's because their teacher, their hoped Messiah, in their minds, was dead. They were sad about Jesus' death. 
They were also disappointed because they had hoped that Jesus was the promised Messiah that they had been looking for, the one who would save them from all their enemies. And they may have even been a bit fearful as well. We're not told necessarily why these men were on the road to Emmaus, but it's very likely that they are leaving Jerusalem because they felt threatened themselves. All of Jesus' disciples after his death go into hiding for fear of being associated with him. Peter, as Jesus was on trial, denied knowing Jesus because he didn't want to suffer a similar fate as him. So these men not only could just be walking back home, but they could be fleeing back home as they talk about the life and events of Jesus. Nevertheless, there's this man that asks, what are you talking about? And their responses are actually pretty interesting. There's a lot of irony in this text, right? We're, we know in reading this from the narration of it, that the whole time this stranger that they're talking to is Jesus, but to them, it is hidden. It is not revealed to them. And there's a number of reasons why this could be, right? We know that Jesus' resurrection body, while he was recognizable in many ways, he was also different. There's also the idea that they saw and heard that Jesus had died. And people who die don't come back to life. And so they just probably never even expected to see him again. But I think most clearly, this passage says in verse 16 that they were actually kept from recognizing him. That they were providentially kept from recognizing who Jesus was. And we'll see, hopefully, why this may be towards the end of our message this morning. Jesus asked, what are you talking about? These men begin to summarize who Jesus was to Jesus himself. Verse 19 says, we're talking about the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God. You see, Jesus, part of his fame was because he was a gifted teacher. There was no greater teacher than Jesus himself, that oftentimes people would marvel with the same sort of um, surprise at Jesus' teaching as they would his miracles. They had never heard anything like this before. So his popularity came from his teaching. It came from his deeds. And there was this growing expectation that maybe this man could be this promised Messiah. Jesus recognized this growing suspicion even in his own life and ministry. And at one point asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? The disciples answered in Mark uh, verses 27 through 30, these were some of the, the guesses, the expectations of who people thought Jesus would be. They said, he's John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And so there was this growing messianic expectation that finally we'll see these things fulfilled. But yet, Jesus' death changed all that in the eyes of the disciples. We hear the disappointment in their voice in verse 20 as they share how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. All those teachings, all those signs and wonders, as amazing as they were, now in the minds of the disciples meant very little because Jesus was no more. And so we have the disciples' disappointment. Verse 21, they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, saying, 
But that hope in their minds is now lost. One of the most ironic parts of this passage is they go on to say in verse 21, yes, now, and it is the third day since these things have happened. They say that with language of despair and defeat, not knowing that that third day is ultimately, according to what we believe in the gospel, what Jesus would later prove to himself, not a day of defeat, but a day of victory, that he had risen. So these men, they hand home to Emmaus because all hope in their minds had been lost. Even though there were rumors of an empty tomb, they share how some women reported that the tomb was empty. But it would appear that these men were not convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead because why then would they flee back or run back to Emmaus if they thought these things to be true? They still did not believe. As we read these things, maybe you share this inner frustration Because the whole time we know that as they talk about Jesus, Jesus is standing right in front of them. And yet they cannot see him. Have you ever had that experience of being looking for something so hard and so intently and you can't find it or you can't see it only to find out that it's been right in front of you the whole time? This is where a lot of the wives nudge their husbands like, yeah, you do that a lot. My wife was here. She would probably nudge me of times in which I'm looking for my sunglasses. Babe, where are my sunglasses? Been looking everywhere for them. They're not where I left them. Did you move them? Only to have on multiple occasions her respond, you mean the ones that are on your head? And so in many ways, that's the experience here. These men are looking at the risen Lord. And yet they cannot see him talked about how they were providentially hindered, but I think they were also hindered by a few other things. I think these disciples couldn't see Jesus because all they could see was his death. That their promised and hoped in Messiah was dead. This is why they're fleeing. This is why they're sad and downcast. This is why they're upset. This is why they talk about the third day as utter defeat. Because in their minds, they didn't have a concept for a suffering Savior. They wanted that triumphant Savior. The one who would throw off all the bondage of those evil nations that were oppressing them as God's people. That they didn't understand that their Savior would come to die for them. And this is something that, quite honestly, they should have known. Jesus taught this on a number of occasions in his life and ministry. One example is Mark 8, 29. Uh, After Jesus had asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Peter then gives the right answer. In verse 29, he says, uh, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And right after that, Jesus explains what he would do as Christ, as the Messiah. Look at Mark 8, 31 through 33. Jesus responds to Peter and he says, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing uh, his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. As Peter identified Jesus as the Christ, and as Jesus explained what he as the Christ would do, that he would suffer and die, Peter had the audacity to rebuke him and say, no, may that never be. Because he, like these disciples on the road to Emmaus, had no concept, no understanding of what the Christ would actually come to do, that he would be a suffering savior. They couldn't see Jesus because all they saw was his death. They also couldn't see Jesus because they couldn't really see their sin. They thought that their biggest problem was the Romans, that that was their enemy. That was the problem that needed to be fixed. But the real problem, the greater problem, the greater enemy was their own sin. And that's what Jesus came to address Some of us mistakenly identify big problems in our life that are not actually the biggest problems that we face. And we come to Jesus thinking that he's here primarily to give us a better marriage, primarily to help us have better finances or better health or a more fulfilling life or better morals. These things often accompany the gospel message, but they are not the gospel message. Our biggest problem, even today, is still our sin. And until we look at our sin as being our biggest problem, we are never going to see Jesus for who he truly is, our Savior from our sin. We may be a lot like these disciples, being right in front of Jesus, being in his presence often, coming to church regularly on Sundays, maybe even reading our Bibles, singing songs, but never truly see Jesus because we've never truly looked at our own sin first. And so this whole time, these disciples are right there with him, and yet they do not see him. But there's a surprising turn in this story to when they truly see Jesus. It's, it's not when Jesus is standing right in front of them. It's actually once he leaves and as Jesus reveals himself through his word. Let us look how Jesus responds to these men after he's let them recap his life events. We look at verse 26, and Jesus finally speaks out in in rebuking them. Sorry, we'll start at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And so even though these men are discouraged, even though they're sad, Jesus still takes the opportunity in many ways to rebuke them, saying, you should have known these things. They should have known it for a number of reasons. Number one, as I've stated earlier, Jesus taught these things in his life and ministry. On three occasions prior to his arrest, he told his disciples that he was going to be arrested that he was going to suffer, that he was going to die, and that he was going to rise again. Let me read for you in Luke, these three accounts. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Luke 9, 44, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Luke 18, 31 through 33, 
And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit on. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Jesus said these things, and yet the disciples could not hear it and could not believe it. But it wasn't just Jesus that said these things, or it wasn't just Jesus who said these things. The Old Testament says these things as well. I'll read you two passages. Isaiah 53, verse 5, a scripture that would have been known by these disciples, says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Psalm 16.10, speaking of the resurrection, even in the Old Testament, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Not only should these men have known what was going to happen, in hearing some of the reports and the news from the women and the other disciples, they shouldn't have been surprised to hear that news if they didn't believe it already. And so Jesus, after rebuking them, graciously leads what was probably the most riveting and exciting Bible study that anybody has ever sat through. Verse 27, as they're walking on the road to Emmaus, it says this is what Jesus did with them on the remainder of that walk. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The stranger to them begins to open the scriptures, the Old Testament, and explains how every single passage, every single book is meant to lead you and to point you to Jesus, the suffering Savior. If there was ever a Bible study to sit in on, this would be the one. Our imaginations can run wild and in thinking about what Jesus may have said. Maybe Jesus, as he opened up, started talking about that he was the promised seed from the woman who would destroy the serpent from Genesis chapter 3. Maybe he went back to the story of Abraham and said that he was the promised son in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Maybe he spoke about how he, as the Messiah, Jesus, is the new ark to protect us from God's wrath. That Jesus is the bread of life that's come down from heaven. That Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. That Jesus is the prophet that was promised that would be greater than Moses. That Jesus would be the new Adam to represent a new people that Jesus, as the, as the serpent was lifted up, would also be lifted up, that whoever would look to him would be saved. That Jesus is the new and faithful Israel. That Jesus is our new and perfect high priest. That Jesus is the son of David who will sit on the throne forever. That Jesus, in many ways, is the fulfillment of the temple, God's presence with us. The list could go on and on and on. What a Bible study that must have been. And so here we see that principle that I talked about earlier, that core value that the gospel is central. 
because the gospel is the message of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is central to the scriptures. That as we look to the scriptures, we should be led to Jesus. This is what he taught these disciples on the road to Emmaus, and this is how he taught in his life and ministry as well. And he rebuked those for failing to follow this sort of thinking and this sort of message. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus rebukes the experts in religion, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who were to know the scriptures the best. Jesus would say this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. These men knew their Bibles, but they could not find Jesus in them. John 5, verses 45 through 46, he says this, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you already, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. The gospel, Jesus, is central to all of Scripture. And so after doing this Bible study, as they approach the town, we read that it begins to get dark and these men are riveted by this teaching from this stranger and they beg him to stay with them for the evening. And he does. Jesus stays with them and it's at this point that he reveals himself to them. There's an interesting note in verse 30 that this revelation of who this stranger is comes through the breaking of bread. We're not told explicitly, but I think there is good reason to conclude that what is happening in this meal is what you and I just participated in not too long ago. That as followers of Jesus, they were in many ways observing communion together. And you could almost picture this scene that Jesus at this table, maybe for the first time, rolls up his sleeves as he prepares to take this bread. And as he reaches for this bread and he blesses it and breaks it, these disciples for the first time see the wounds on his hands. And it's at that time, in verse 31, that their eyes are opened. I'm talking about their physical eyes here. We're talking about their spiritual eyes, that they finally realize that this man that they've been walking with for the last roughly seven miles, who's led this study of scripture, who is now sharing in the Lord's table with us, is our Lord Jesus risen from the dead. And as soon as they see him, he disappears. And this is their response. Verse 32, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You see, it was through that study of scripture that God was opening their eyes. And that sensation of a burning heart, that that longing desire, that, that scene of truth was God revealing Jesus to them through his word the same way that he reveals Jesus to us today. You see, you and I do not get to see Jesus in the flesh. He has risen and he has ascended 
and he is coming again soon. And so where do you and I look in order to see Jesus? We look here. That Jesus is the word of God. This is how he's described in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We can see Jesus through his word. And so their eyes are finally opened, their hearts are burning with passion, and having already spent much of the day walking into Emmaus, what do they do? At night, they sprint back to Jerusalem to see the other 11 disciples, to tell them that Jesus is risen. And what happens when they get there? They find out that Simon has already seen Jesus and that they hear from these disciples that he is alive and he is risen. And they say, he's appeared to us also. This is the good news. And so what are some of the takeaways that I want us to understand from this passage as it relates to the centrality of the gospel and of Jesus? Well, first and foremost is that God's word is sufficient for us to see and to know who Jesus is. It's sufficient. It's God's intended mean to show you who Jesus is. It's interesting. Luke, of all the gospel writers, does something interesting here. That the first people to see the risen Lord Jesus, according to the gospel of Luke, of Luke are men who find him in the word primarily. It's not the women at the temple or at the, at the tomb. It's not Peter, as some of the other gospel accounts have, but it's these men who encounter Jesus primarily through his word. If you weren't aware, Luke writes this whole gospel in many ways as an evangelistic outreach to a man named Theophilus. Let me write for you the accounts of Jesus so that you could come to know and believe him. Luke was wanting the man in, that he was writing to and us who, by extension, he was writing to, to see Jesus in the same way that these disciples saw him through the word of God, that our hearts too would be lit aflame with faith. And so God's word is sufficient and we need to expect to meet Jesus today through his word. Have your hearts been lit on fire as you've studied God's word? Have you met Jesus through God's word? My hope is that you have. My hope is, is that you would look for him all the more in the scriptures. As we stated earlier in, in our core value, the gospel is not something just for beginners. It's not just for those who are new in the faith. It's for us today, even as we mature in Christ. And so my hope is that as we talk about other core values like personal Bible study, that we would learn how to find Jesus in the passages that we read daily as our devotions. You may not see him explicitly, but you may see elements or themes that would point you to who he is and what he's done. And I'll tell you from my own personal experience that when I began to read the Bible expecting to find Jesus no matter what book I was in, my Bible reading got a lot more exciting and enjoyable. That that feeling that, that these disciples had, that's not just a conversion feeling, that's a Bible study feeling when you're looking for Jesus in Scripture. That your heart could be rekindled each and every time. 
And so these things are true for the scriptures, that the gospel is central, that Jesus is central. But with regards to our core value is we want to make this truth central in everything that we do. God's word informs how we do everything. And if God's word has Christ at the center of it, then everything we do should have Christ at the center of it. Every part of our ministry should be committed to doing what scripture does, pointing people to Jesus. It's what we should preach whenever the Bible is taught, whether it's in a Bible study, whether it's in a Sunday school, whether it's in a kid's ministry, or even here more formally during our sermon time on a Sunday morning. It should be what we sing about most often, that we're singing the gospel, we're singing about Jesus. It should be what we pray about together, that we remember the gospel even in our prayers, that we repeat it to one another. It should season our conversations with each other as we seek to encourage one another. And it should be what we do as we observe communion, which is meant to point us to Jesus. And as we see people step forward in obedience through baptism, as we see people commit themselves to Jesus. And so my hope is that every time you open up God's word, you open it up in order to look to and to find Jesus. But a further extension of that, my hope would also be that every time you come to Harvest Liberty Lake Church, that you're coming wanting to see more of Jesus and everything that we do. The gospel is the only hope that we have here in this world. And I recognize that these concepts may be new. This commitment to gospel centrality may be new to you, even though you may not be new to church. I want to take a moment to address any of those whom this may be new in a completely different way, in a way in which you've just never believed and trusted in the gospel altogether. That this is now the first time that you've seen Jesus. Well, let me just tell you, if you're seeing Jesus as the suffering Savior, your only hope in this life and in the life to come, that as we close our service in prayer, that you would spend some time praying quietly in your own heart to just say, Jesus, I see you for who you are. And I want to recognize and live my life like you have called me to live by trusting myself to you, believing in your sacrifice, your life, death, and resurrection for my salvation, and asking you to help help me through your spirit to live a life that is pleasing to you and to commit yourself to him. So let us go to the Lord in prayer and thank God for his word and for the gospel. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do indeed thank you for your word, that by your spirit you led men from all time periods, all cultures, all nationalities in many ways, to write one story. Although this book is 66 books with 40 plus authors, it is your story written by your intent through your spirit to point us to your son. Truly is a miracle. And so, Father, we pray that as we come to your word and as we come to gather together as your church, that we would each time be led to seeing Jesus. That even though we cannot see him physically, we can see him with the spiritual sight that you give us. That we may confess him as our Lord and as our Savior and give our lives wholly to him. 
there's anybody here who is doing that for the first time, Lord, I pray that your spirit would fill them mightily, that their hearts would be set aflame and excited, Lord, and that we as the church, brothers and sisters, may help fan that flame into a consistent flame, one in which would lead to a life of commitment and obedience before you and blessing as a result. Thank you for being our faithful God. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Help us to be faithful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.